Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Hellman Class Reunion podcast. Even though we release new episodes every week, we actually began recording prior to the COVID-19 pandemic and completed recording prior to the renewed attention towards the Black Lives Matter movement. So in earlier episodes, we do not mention these events, and in later episodes, our reflections on what is going on may seem a bit out of sync with the present. However, we want to assure you that the gravity of what we are experiencing is not lost among us. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy our first season of Hillman Class Reunion. Ely, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm all right. So, and welcome everyone else. Those of you who are listening, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us as we talk about episode 18 of season one of A Different World and episode 22, season four of The Cosby Show. And we have The Cosby Show in here because this is an episode and where in which Denise comes home to visit her family. So as a note, we structure the podcast to review the episodes of A Different World in chronological order and also episodes of The Cosby Show that directly involve Denise um, and or Hillman College. So pull out your blankets, your memories, your flasks, and hang out with us for a few minutes on the quad as we delve into this episode of A Different World and a really fun episode of The Cosby Show. So, Portia, tell us, give us some background info on A Different World, Season 1, Episode 18, entitled Speech Therapy. Okay, so Speech Therapy originally aired March 10th, 1988, and the episode summary is as follows. Jaleesa panics at the prospect of making a speech in front of her poetry class, and Maggie obsesses over the money Denise borrowed from her more than a month ago. Meanwhile, Whitley gets Dwayne and Ron to fix her illegal humidifier. So, it's a lot of stuff happening over at Gilbert Hall. This episode was directed by Ellen Gittleson. Um, who's directed several episodes uh, previously. Very familiar with that name. Um, This episode was also written by Cheryl Gard. We, uh, I think we mentioned her on a previous episode. She Mm -hmm. actually wrote episode six entitled Rudy and the Snow Queen. Oh, okay. Yes. And uh, Cheryl Gard went on to write uh, several more episodes of A Different World, and she actually became co-executive producer during during season three. Oh, okay. And she also went on uh, to become a writer and executive producer for both Hanging with Mr. Cooper and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So she was responsible for a good portion of our television viewing in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Our producers list 
It's the same as always. We have Marcy Carsey, Ann Bates, Beverly Cashin, Joanne Curly Kerner, George Crosby, Susan Falls Hill, Ted Mumford, and Tom Warner. The cast is also pretty much the same. We've got Denise, Jaleesa, Maggie, Dwayne, Whitley, Ron, Letty, Gloria makes an appearance. And a special guest of this episode, playing the character of Dr. Foster, we have Mr. Roscoe Lee Brown. Uh, he may be familiar to some of y'all because uh, this is not the first time that we've mentioned Mr. Brown on our podcast, uh, nor is this the first time that the character of Dr. Foster um, has appeared in the Hellman universe. However, this is a very special episode because this is the first time Dr. Foster has actually appeared on a different world. This is the first time we're seeing him, this Hellman professor, actually be on campus and teaching a class uh, because previously we saw him on uh, at least two episodes of the Cosby show. So character has already been established and now we're seeing him mm -hmm. in action. Um, and just a little word on Roscoe Lee Brown. Uh, we may have stated this earlier. If we have, it's worth stating again. This is a legendary stage, film, and television Absolutely. actor. He appeared on numerous TV shows throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, including classics like Mannix, Bonanza, Sanford and Son, Good Times, All in the Family, Falcon Crest, Soap, Law and Order, ER, and Will and Grace. And that's just a few, according to IMDb. So he, he's done a lot. Um, and just yeah. a little fun fact. Did you know that Mr. Roscoe Lee Brown won an Emmy for Outstanding Guest Performer in a Comedy Series in 1986 for this exact role? I did not know that. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yes. Yes. For playing Dr. Foster in an episode of The Cosby Show. So he is back uh, to play his Emmy winning uh, role. Also, nice little little piece of trivia. Mr. Roscoe Lee Brown is a graduate of Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, and he was also a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated. Oh, how fitting. Mr. Brown is a HBCU graduate. Awesome. That's right. That's right. So he he is very much aware of what it's like to be um, to be on campus. And I believe he was also an instructor. He he taught um, several classes in literature uh, before he became an actor. So he's he probably knows better than than most people how to conduct himself in a very professorial way, um, especially in this in this poetry class that he'll be teaching this episode. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. That's why he does his scenes so well. Because remember, in his when he appeared in the Cosby Show. Regarding the Hillman universe, he was reciting classic literature. That's right. Yes. He he, he knew very much what he was talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had to tell the writers a few things. Probably so. All right. So go ahead and, and uh, get us started on, on these scenes here. So this scene opens up with Jaleesa in the dorm room, and she's a bit frazzled and upset because of a new assignment in her poetry class. In previous assignments, she's basically submitted a written report, but now she has to give a speech and she abhors public speaking. So Maggie and Denise, being the good friends and roommates that they are, try to offer help. 
But when Jaleesa practices in front of them, they realize that she needs a lot of work and that her fear and hatred of public speaking is probably, you know, well rationalized. (laughs) So meanwhile, the scene pivots to Whitley's dorm room and she arrives in her room to find that her her humidifier is no longer working. So of course, who does she vent to? But her trusty friend and sidekick, Millie, Millie is thrown all the way off because no one is supposed to have a major appliance in their dorm room. And Millie seems to be a bit of a rule follower. But of course, that does not stop Whitley because she needs this humidifier for her beautiful skin. And, you know, as they're troubleshooting, trying to figure out how to resolve this issue, Millie suggests that they call her boo, Ron, to fix it. Meanwhile, Jaleesa and Maggie decide to go eat dinner off campus, maybe to relieve some of the stress that Jaleesa is feeling from having to give a speech. But then Maggie realizes that she doesn't have any cash because they run off campus. They can't use their meal cards. One of the reasons why Maggie doesn't have any cash is because she loaned Denise some money five weeks ago, $22 to be exact. And Denise hasn't paid her back yet. So we can see Billy is having a bit of, well, not having anxiety, but she's obviously and reasonably so bothered by the fact that Denise owes her money. Suddenly, you know, as she's lamenting over the fact that Denise owes her money that she borrowed five weeks earlier, Denise comes in with a shopping bag. She has a new purchase and it is a hat. She shows the girls that uh, hat and she also notes that she can't, Denise notes that she can't believe how much money she spent on the hat. And she even shows Maggie how much she spent on the hat. And of course, Maggie is even more bothered by the fact that Denise has made a purchase while owing her money. So back in Whitley's room, Ron and Dwayne have come in to save the day. They're assessing the humidifier and clearly they have no idea of what to do. They may have some experience doing an oil change or something with the car, but um, household appliances, in particular humidifier, they are absolutely clueless about. So in terms of, you know, breaking this down and talking about it, let's start at the beginning. Jaleesa is obviously experiencing some stage fright. Have you ever had stage fright, Portia? Yes, I do not like, <laughs> I don't like public speaking. Um, I have had stage fright before. I remember one time in high school, I, you know, in an effort to try to push myself to um, overcome my my fear of public speaking, I signed up for this Shakespeare oratory contest, I guess. And um, we had to read a monologue. And I, you know, I did as much hard work as I could to, to memorize it. I got it down and I don't know, man, I got on this. So it, we weren't even in front of an audience. We were just in the auditorium at my school and we were on the stage. Um, and it was, you know, other participants that were, that were sitting in the seat. So we were performing in front of each other. And I got up there mm-hmm. and I froze. Oh no. And I blanked out and I was just, I felt so disappointed in myself because I practiced so hard. So yeah, so that was that was my my time with stage fright. I've had to speak in public since then. I tend to 
enjoy reading from a script or at least an outline so that I have some idea of what I'm saying. Otherwise, there's no telling what I might say or or won't say. I might not even say anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I used to love the stage when I was younger. Uh, public speaking didn't bother me at all. But then after grad school, because the experience was so deprecating, it just really made me insecure about a lot of things, including public speaking. So now I'm actually very nervous about it these days. Mm-hmm. I'll do it when I have to, but it's not something that I necessarily volunteer to do. Whereas when I was a kid, I would volunteer to public speak to do, you know, speaking parts and to have um, like, you know, a major role in a play or be the narrator of a play, you know, a play or production at church anytime. But these days, not so much. Right. It yeah, it can come and go. Sometimes people can can uh, be okay, and then you know things change, and they're not quite as comfortable, and then they have to work on work on yeah. getting back to that comfort level they used to have. Right. Now I noticed a picture that probably has been there the whole time, but I just noticed it um, during this viewing. Was that a photo of Patty Labelle hanging over Jaleesa's bed? I. Don't know. I missed that. I missed that. I did notice she had something, maybe something that said the Wizard of Oz. That was my first time noticing that in her room. Did you see that at all? No. Okay. okay so we have two things. You have to look for Payla Bell. I have to right. look for the Wizard of Oz. Right. <laughs> maybe <laughs> Next that, time we watch an episode. Maybe that was the first time the camera really pivoted towards Jaleesa's side of the room. And we, that's why we we're just noticing things. I did notice stuff on her wall. It just wasn't Patty LaBelle. Yeah. I don't know. I'm also curious. You know, sometimes, um, you know, set designers, they might switch some things in and out depending on the season or depending True. on what it is that they want to convey. Right. So. Yeah, not only am I curious to know if that really was Payla Bell. It looked like Payla Bell, mm-hmm. but, you know, it wasn't a close-up. Yeah. But I also would be curious to know if if she was there the whole time or if they just keep swapping out different people. And if that is Payla Bell, I would be very curious to know how they handled it in subsequent seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, because as as true fans know, Patty LaBelle eventually... Um, came on several times as a guest uh, playing right. Dwayne's mother. Right, right. So we can't have a universe where Patty LaBelle is Dwayne Wayne's mother and the Patty LaBelle. <laughs> Extraordinary. Exactly, exactly. Also in this opening scene, uh, we have another dilemma that Whitley is dealing with, and that's her humidifier. So I automatically started thinking about items and electronics that were banned in the dorm when we were in school. Do you recall any items that maybe were common that people snuck into the dorm that were banned? And did you have any of that contraband in your room? Not that I can think of. I remember, you know, we had our little mini fridges. My freshman year roommate had a um, one of those overhead dryers, you know, how you roll your hair and then you sit under the dryer. Mm-hmm. But that was allowed. Um, Or did I have one? I forgot. I feel like at some point, I think maybe she had one and then I eventually bought one and I bought a set of rollers 
because, you know, wraps were in style. So we would roll right. our hair and then we would wrap it. And it's a whole thing. Um, and I feel like I saw somebody bring in a kettle, like one of those electric kettles uh, to heat up water. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't recall that being illegal. Maybe it was. But that's it. I don't recall there being any any major items. If they were there, I didn't know about it. How about oh, you? Okay. Now, we didn't have any illegal appliances in our room, but I do know of people who did. For example, hot plates and deep fryers Ooh. were banned, but people would have them. There were people in our dorm, particularly our freshman year, who would literally cook whole meals like fried chicken, rice, <laughs> and broccoli, the whole nine. Oh my gosh. No, we, we didn't do that. We didn't go there. If oh, okay. we really wanted to like have home cooked food, we would go to, mm-hmm. um, so they had a multicultural center that had a kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, occasionally if somebody really, really wanted to do that, that's where they could do it. Oh, nice. Yeah. But for the most part, we wouldn't, <laughs> we're nobody trying to cook. You know, and then, of course, um, the upperclassmen, they got to uh, live in the campus apartments. So they had okay. kitchens and, you know, people would cook there. But no, nah, we wouldn't we weren't doing that. And that's so interesting because, again, fans know that, uh, what was it, maybe season five ish when Jada Pinkett Smith's character came, Lena. She I want to say it was Lena. Maybe it was uh, one of her classmates. Uh, got in trouble because somebody brought in a hot plate and set off the fire alarm and Gilbert Hall almost Mm -hmm. burned down to the ground. Yeah. Now, in more recent times, I was reprimanded for having a space heater in my office. (laughs) (laughs) I was been reprimanded twice, but thankfully not fired. Right. Right. That's a tough one. That's a tough one because you got to stay warm. Right. And speaking of contraband and rules, of course, are you surprised to see that it's Whitley that has broken the rules? Because as she quotes in the show, rules are for the common good, which is very well for the common. So Whitley is like, I am not common. Right. Yeah. Of course, she would have broken the rules and and snuck something in there. She probably had it since she first got there because, you know, this is at least her second year being in that room by herself. Right. So I'm, exactly. It, it fits. She has she has her nice little um uh what do you call it? Her uh her desk with all of her beauty supplies on it and she has her exercise machine. I think it's an exercise bike and she has her stereo, mm-hmm. she's got her bed, she's got everything in there does not look like a typical dorm room at all. So, you know, and not to mention, again, her name is Whitley Gilbert and the dorm is called Gilbert Hall. She comes from a long line of Gilberts Absolutely. at Hillman. So, no, she <laughs> says the rules. Rules don't run her. So the third dilemma in the scene or, yeah, in this opening scene is, of course, we have the situation with Denise and Maggie and the loaned money. Was there any particular character that you empathize with more regarding this dilemma, Maggie or Denise? Oh, I, I related to Maggie so much. 
yeah, it because you know, it's always been hard for me. I feel like <laughs> I can't even answer the question. Uh, I feel like this is how Maggie would answer the question. Um, just trying to figure <laughs> out how to answer it. But um, yeah, it's always such an uncomfortable thing because you don't want to embarrass anybody if they don't have it. Um, you don't want to seem like you're being petty by asking for your money back. Like ideally, you would just hope that people would remember and then you, you know, and, and you don't have to be in that awkward state and you just go. So I, I do feel bad for the uncomfortable position that Maggie is in. Although I definitely can um, understand Jaleesa's point, which is just like, you know, just ask for the money, just get it over with, just ask for the right. money and, you know, be done. But yeah, it can be a tough thing. It can be an uncomfortable thing. What about you? How do you feel about right. loaning money? So I learned years ago, like in my early 20s, that if I ever loan money, and I'll use air quotes for loan, if I ever loan money to someone, don't expect it back. Or rather, I don't, and I don't lend money that I cannot afford to not get back. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, I only, you know, if I quote, you know, air quotes loan money is really given as a gift. Um, I can empathize with Maggie too, because I'm not a very confrontational person. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't want to come off as petty, et cetera. But um, I have, you know, I did loan a friend some money years ago, like when I was in my early 20s, you know, a struggling grad student. And I really needed the money back. She actually told me, you know, I'm, she probably was exaggerating. But, you know, she was like, I'm thinking about stripping. Da, 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 da. I'm like, oh, no. oh, girl, like, don't strip. She probably was lying. <laughs> But <laughs> anyway, she's like, I'll pay you back. It was a couple hundred dollars, really, you know, some money I really, really could not afford to loan. I really needed that money back. But in it and not getting that money back did set me back financially. And I think I might have been venting to someone about it. And they said, never loan money that you can't afford to get back. So now, you know, it's. Now I'm never in that position because again, when I lend money, right. I don't expect it back anyway. So. Yeah, that, that is a good, um, a good rule to follow. And I, I do try to follow that as well. Have you ever borrowed and f- kind of found yourself in a Denise situation? Cause I don't think, you know, she maliciously did not pay Maggie back, but simply forgot. Have you ever forgotten? Um, yeah, yeah. Not too long ago, I borrowed some money from my sister and she had to mm-hmm. ask for it back. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, just profusely apologetic and just, you know, I gave mm-hmm. her the money um, immediately, uh, you know, and she she understood it was it was all good. But, yeah, I I hate to be in that position. It's already uncomfortable when, you know, you have to borrow money from somebody. Um, but I always, always, right. always make it a point to give it back. And in the instances where I don't, it's always because I forgot and I'm always embarrassed because I forgot because I never want anybody to, you know, feel like I'm taking advantage of them. Like I always want people to know that I appreciate and I know that they didn't have to do what they did. And I recognize that, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to, I want to, to make it right. But yeah, I've, I've done that. You know, we're human beings. 
people forget. Right. Yep, they do. Yeah, I definitely have forgotten. And, you know, the payback has been delayed, Mm -hmm. which to your point is embarrassing, too. And I have apologized profusely. So in the meantime, you know, now definitely if I find myself in a situation where I need to borrow, uh, I'll make a note, write it down. And, you know, also, thankfully, in these days, I have PayPal Mm -hmm. and Cash App. (laughs) So, you know, it can make things a lot easier, especially when you're in a situation where like I need cash and you don't have cash. Right. Right. For whatever reason, I'm like, okay, I could just, you know, PayPal it or cash app it or uh, Venmo it really quick. Yeah. So having that technology is pretty helpful and convenient these days. Absolutely. All right. So we have, we have our three dilemmas all set up in that first scene. So we ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the next day, we get to Jaleesa's poetry class with Dr. Foster reciting Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, Horses Graze. After class, Jaleesa asked Dr. Foster if she could please submit a written report instead of an oral report because she's very, very uncomfortable with public speaking. So Dr. Foster, like any good professor, encourages her to push herself to give a report. He reminds her that she is a business student and to start a business, right? One of the items or things that that one needs is to be able to take risks. So Dr. Foster reminds her of that and encourages her to take a risk and to do the public speaking. Then back at Whitley's room, Ron and Dwayne are busy trying to figure out how to fix the humidifier. Willie, of course, unsurprisingly, grows impatient, but Millie reminds her that they are doing her a favor. So she needs to, you know, take a step back and chill because she's not supposed to have an appliance in the room in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of happy Millie was able to check her privilege for a second. So they realize that they can't do anything. So the group decides to take the humidifier to a repair shop. Downstairs in the lobby, meanwhile, Gloria brings Maggie and Denise some items from the store. And Gloria basically is sitting there waiting for her money. So Maggie is shocked at how much Denise has spent for an Italian magazine, a whopping $8. So let's discuss. Again, going back to the beginning of the scene, Dr. Foster is back. Yay. Now we get to see him in action and we will also see more of him in the future. Portia, Gwendolyn Brooks. I know the name rings a bell for a lot of people, but give us a little background if you got something. I know you do because you're such a profound researcher. So, yeah, I wanted to just say a few things about who Gwendolyn Brooks is. She is an important figure to African-American culture and African-American literature. Uh, She's a groundbreaking poet, author, and teacher. Uh, She was born in Kansas, but raised in Chicago. And in 1950, she became the first African-American to win a Pulitzer Prize, period, in any category. She happened to win in in the category of poetry, but she was the very first African-American Pulitzer Prize winner. And in 1968, Mm -hmm. she became, she was named Poet Laureate for the state of Illinois. 
um, and it's a position that she kept until her death in 2000. Um, so right around this time in 1988, she was in her early 80s. Um, but yeah, she she was um, very important um, to literature and to the African-American community. She was uh, kind of groundbreaking in her poetry because it, it was able to bridge the gap between academic poetry and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, more political African-American kind of culture because um, things were things were happening, especially throughout the 60s. And she was able to kind of give a voice to it and, and, and put some interpretation to it um, and present a lot of the ideas that mm-hmm. were forming out in the community you know, and out on the streets and, and bring that back into academia and bring that back into literature spaces so that they could consume it too. So, uh, yeah, she, she was very, very important for the different communities that she was able to step into. Uh, so yeah, Gwendolyn Brooks, I'm okay. glad we got a shout out on this show yeah. and, you know, and shout out to, again, uh, season one gets a lot of grief. <laughs> when it comes to a different world and its representation of uh-huh. HBCUs and Black students and whatnot. But, you know, I'm really glad, again, that we're going through this season because we are seeing, you know, these these uh, nods to important Black figures. And, you know, it's, it's more on a, su- on a subtle level. Absolutely. Um, and there is a place for subtlety. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I was reminded in watching this episode and even in reflecting on the episodes that we've watched thus far, to your point, again, the show, you know, gets a lot of flack for the first season. But what I'm realizing is that the first season was actually pretty good. It's just that Debbie Allen made it great. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we kind of because. We didn't because of that greatness we saw afterwards. I think we are quick to slight the first season, but it really it it really wasn't bad. It was it was it was pretty it was pretty decent. It's pretty good in my opinion. But anyway, in this particular scene, when Gloria comes to deliver the goods, Denise has or she's picked up a magazine for Denise, but Maggie got gets a stamp from from um, Gloria. And at the time, Portia, I bet you know. I'm sure you looked it up. How much was a stamp in 1988 when this show aired? Well, you know, well, Maggie lets us know. 22 cents. A stamp costs ah. only 22 cents. She gave her 22 cents. Did you verify that? Because I know you did. Girl, let me go see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> let me Let me ask Google. So, yeah, Maggie actually uh, showed us that a stamp cost 22 cents and and we have now confirmed it. It did indeed cost 22 cents for one stamp in 1988. Now, in 2020, guess how much a stamp costs? I have no idea because whenever I need a stamp, I just go ask for a book of black heritage stamps and just pay whatever (laughs) they tell me to pay. I don't even. The last time I knew the price of a stamp, at some point it was 42 cents. After 42 cents, I just stopped counting because, you know, we get the the price of a stamp used to be printed on the stamp. Remember? Right. But then they changed the rule 
or law, statute, whatever, such that now all stamps are forever stamped. So you pay a certain price for a stamp today and the stamp basically maintains the value of first class postage, you know, for the within those weight restriction, weight mm -hmm. and size restrictions forever. But how much do you know? <laughs> yeah, I had to look this up. Okay. 55 cents. Oh, wow. 55 cents. We are well on our way to a dollar. We're going to have to pay a full dollar for one measly stamp. Yeah, we probably, you know, wouldn't be a bad idea to pay it now, actually, just given the fiscal trouble that Ooh. the United States Postal Service is in. So they've been running an operational deficit for probably over a decade by now. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question. What is going on with the U.S. Postal Service? I hear that they about to shut down. There are, you know, attempts to it's from the headlines that I've read. Admittedly, I haven't really delved into the topic, but it seems as though the administration is not very post office friendly and the post office itself is a weird. Um, it's a weird animal because it's not government, but it's not private. It's like an amalgamation of government and private, though. So. I don't know what will happen to the future of our, our postal service. I, what I do know is that uh, a significant proportion of those employed by the United States Postal Service are African-American and other minority. Right. So, you know, that would have a substantial impact on their employment, which I think would be very detrimental and, and not good at all. So I'm definitely a post office advocate which is why, you know, I use the post office as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there's communities that really rely on the post office more than others, especially rural communities. Absolutely. You know, recently, John Oliver did a whole uh, episode based on the U.S. Postal Service and, you know, just reminded me of that fact, just how important it is to particularly rural communities historically right. and, you know, and still to this day. Um, and we need to be concerned about it because it's so easy for some people to just kind of say, oh, well, you know, we'll just just email. I don't need to send a letter. I could just email whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the U.S. Postal Service is responsible for more than just letters. And there's some, some things that you can't get around. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll see, you know, hopefully by the time this episode airs, at least we still have the Postal Service running <laughs> and we'll see what happens in the future. <laughs> right. I don't I think we'll have it for a while now. Our kids, should they come or, you know, the, the babies that are growing up now, once they, you know, reach the milestones that we are reaching, mm. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> All right. Well, y'all, y'all, y'all say a prayer for the U.S. Postal Service. Speaking of the cost of goods and mailing, we see Denise paying $8 for an Italian fashion magazine. How much do you think an Italian fashion magazine or a major fashion, any major fashion magazine would cost now? More than eight, that's for sure. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I remember uh, this was, or maybe it was around 10 years ago. There was this big, big deal. I think it was Italian Vogue and it was all black women 
in the issue. Like it was the first mm-hmm. thing, first time anything like that had ever been done before. It's a black woman on a cover, black women throughout. And I remember buying it and I remember it being so expensive. Yeah, you know, I just, I wanted it just because it was such a moment. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, wow, this is expensive. And, and I think I paid, I had to have paid over $10 for it. And I wasn't used to paying yeah. that much for a single issue. So I'm sure by now it's got to be close to 20, at least 15 by now. Yeah, I think they're definitely over 10. And then a lot of the special edition ones comparable to the one you mentioned, because, you know, they those will have an extra price associated to it. The collector's editions, whatever. Um, I think they're like somewhere at like 20, somewhere between like 23 and 26 dollars. From what I've seen in the grocery store. That's expensive. Yeah. Because one of my coworkers, I helped her get some Beyonce tickets on the run too, because I had one of the promotional credit cards that, you know, they, that allow access to be some of the first buyers, whatever. So as a gift, she gave me a copy of a special edition bow with Beyonce. And it was about $23, I think. Woo. <laughs> All right, so let's wrap this episode up with the last scene. Later, we see Dwayne and Ron attempt to sneak the humidifier downstairs and out of Gilbert Hall. But of course, in true sitcom fashion, Letty comes out to watch a documentary and kind of suspends the operation for a second. Whitley distracts her by asking her to help her with her foxtrot or what ends up being the tango because that's the music that comes on and of course letty being as traveled and cultured as she is can do a tango meanwhile Dwayne and ron successfully get the appliance out of the door while letty is distracted later that night jaleesa and maggie can't sleep they both have these monkeys on their back Jaleesa is afraid that she's going to disappoint Dr. Foster if she submits the written report because she really wants to make him proud by giving by giving the oral report. Meanwhile, Denise encourages her to face her fears and just go for the oral report. Maggie, on the other hand, is like, you should do what you're comfortable doing. And she's like, you know, give in to your fear. Maggie in basically trying to discourage Jaleesa from doing the oral report is basically talking herself into a frenzy and everybody's like well Maggie what is your problem what's wrong with you because you know she's obviously kind of frazzled and Maggie finally tells Denise she kind of breaks like you owe me money can you give me my money Denise is shocked and embarrassed as we discussed earlier that it's been six weeks To the day, as Jaleesa reminds them, that she has owed Maggie $22. Denise profusely apologizes and immediately gives her the money. So the next day in Dr. Foster's poetry class, Jaleesa finally gives her oral report. And unlike I was expecting in true sitcom fashion, the report does not go well at all. Yet, Dr. Foster is proud of her preparation and her effort and her willingness to take a risk. And the final scene back in Gilbert Hall, Dwayne and Ron attempt to sneak Whitley's humidifier back into the room, 
But of course, they are caught by Letty before they can make it all the way upstairs. And she basically tells them to sit it right there and informs them that maintenance has seen the humidifier and they unplugged it because it was illegal. Letty was hoping that Whitley would get the hint. And of course, everybody is dumbfounded and mad at Whitley that she didn't realize that the humidifier wasn't working because it was simply unplugged. So they bring the humidifier to the storage room and Ron and Dwayne cannot believe they went through all of that trouble for several days for absolutely nothing. Portia, have you ever broken the dorm rules? No, I'm a rule follower. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I have. I didn't either. I was. There were some things I was afraid of, and I liked college too much to get kicked out. So, right. No, I wasn't doing none of that. I remember when I was in a summer program. So I had before I actually enrolled in college as a freshman in high school. I would attend these summer programs that were frequently held on college campuses. And so one year I remember being on a college campus and there were other, there were students from around the country that were there as well. And so I, you know, and it, and it was a local college. Um, so it was part of it was just like, okay, you know, I'm familiar with this area. I'm fine. I'm cool. But also it was a new experience because I'm learning, I'm meeting different people and they have different levels of experience and stuff. And I remember there was, a rumor of some kids and they were getting into, you know, some stuff that we weren't supposed to get into. They were smoking and drinking. Mm -hmm. They were going to this local park that you're not supposed to go to. They told us to stay away from there. And next thing I know, one of the kids got kicked out of the program because he got caught at the park. Okay. And I, the, if there was ever anything in me that wanted to try to push the limits, I was put right back in my little square and I said, nope. You're not going to do that to me. I got into this program, even though, you know, getting sent home for me would be going right up the street. <laughs> I didn't mm -hmm, want that. Mm -hmm. I didn't want my mama coming up in there and helping me pack. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Talk about embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been in Jaleesa's shoes where you disappointed a professor or was scared to disappoint, concerned about disappointing a professor? Um. Yeah, in a general sense, um, you know, I've always wanted to put my best foot forward. I never wanted anybody to think that I was, you know, doing anything halfway. So, yeah, in, in a general sense, I always wanted to um, impress my professors or, you know, do as well as I could. I don't recall specifically disappointing a professor or being concerned about a particular professor, but yeah, I, I do remember just a general, I want to do well, no matter who it is, I want to do well. Gotcha. How about you? Um, The only thing I can really think, the only instance I can really think of was in my macroeconomics class, the fall semester, I was online for my sorority <laughs> and I was frequently falling asleep in class <laughs> and I used to put my head I, I thought I was hiding behind this um this guy I knew and you know he knew my situation and he was very he was very patient with me and you know he would kind of tap me when the professor <laughs> was going to be walking by etc cetera, etc cetera. 
And so I didn't know he could see me, Professor Muhammad. And one day after class, he's like, LaRonda, if you're going to be falling asleep in my class, you might as well not come. And I felt like I had disappointed him because I had taken one of his classes, another class of his before. And I think he saw me as a, you know, a good diligent student and to be for him to catch me and call me out about consistently falling asleep in class. That was a bit embarrassing. I felt like I disappointed him. But needless to say, I managed to stay up the rest of the semester. Now, let me flip that on you because I know that you were a professor. Uh, for several years. So have you ever been disappointed by students? Not that I can recall, actually. Okay. I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, not that I recall. I'm not saying that no one ever did. I just, I didn't take it to heart, I guess. (laughs) That's good. I might have had a moment, but I just don't have any recollections of it. That's a good thing. All right. So As we wrap this episode up, why don't we talk about some final thoughts or final takeaways from this particular episode? Um, My final thoughts would be, I thought this was a pretty good episode. What I liked or what stood out to me most about this episode was the fact that we didn't have a fairy tale ending for Jaleesa, per se. She attempted or rather she did do the oral presentation but she did not just knock it out of the box in true sitcom fashion so I could appreciate that and also I really liked the dynamic and the relationship and the interactions that Jaleesa had with Mr. Foster her professor which in my opinion um, was just very salient and demonstrative of what a lot of those relationships at an HBCU and a professor can be, and not just at an HBCU, but also uh, the relationships that students can have with their instructors. So I really appreciated that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I did appreciate the Jaleesa storyline and how that ended. I also liked a few of the moments that Millie and Ron had. Millie and Ron kind of, you know, they, they spoke with some, you know, with a bit of a backbone this episode. Oh, yeah. Millie, you know, trying to remind Whitley, you know, you might want to take the tone out your voice a little bit because you need help. You you need mm-hmm. them more than they need you right now. And you can't act right, so impatient, right. you know, and so demanding right now. They're they're helping you for free. Um, and even Ryan right. was just like, you know, we ain't got to be here. <laughs> I forgot exactly what Ron said, but he, he had that. He had a little bit of that tone to him too, because Whitley was snippy with yeah. him. He was like, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm not taking that." And even at the very end, you know, mm-hmm. when they found out that it, the the humidifier was only unplugged, Ron was just glaring at her right. like, "Man, <laughs> I got to go because this is not okay." Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I appreciate that they got those moments, and I felt like, especially for Ron we got a glimpse into what we will see in subsequent seasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How might this episode be different if done today? I don't know. I feel like, uh, you know, it, it might've been at least the whole, uh, you know, Venmo cash app element to uh, Maggie mm-hmm. and, and Denise. Yeah. And 
Jalisa. Oh, I don't know. I I don't know how that how her storyline would be different. I feel like this, you know, for the most part, this episode could probably. Oh, you know what? That humidifier would probably be a lot smaller. <laughs> that thing looked like absolutely. Uh, you know, one of those uh, floor TVs. Mm-hmm. It did. It did. Or like some type of heater, like furnace type situation. Yeah, I I kept looking at. It. I was like, they're saying humidifier, but I don't I don't understand. And it took me a while to realize. Okay, well maybe that's how humidifiers looked back then, or right, I don't know. Right. Maybe those were just how larger humidifiers look. But yeah, I, a humidifier may still be contraband, considered contraband in dorms. I'm not sure, but it would certainly be a lot smaller today and be much easier to sneak in and out. Yeah, I I didn't because I was surprised that a humidifier was even considered contraband. Now, a yeah. space heater, I could see, but a humidifier, I was like, hmm. But maybe it's because I'm only aware of what they look like and how they operate in today's form. Right, right, right. And, you know, maybe they did look like that back then, though. So. What do you think would be different if it was done today? I was the only thing I could think of was the how the money was exchanged. Yeah. Between Gloria and the girls and um, even Maggie and Denise incorporating some type of cash app Venmo situation. Yeah. All right. So I think it's time for us to rate this episode. Where would you put this on a scale of one to five? Um, I've been so conservative lately. I'm going to give it a two and a half. Okay. Actually, you know, what? I'll give it a three. I thought it was pretty good. There was nothing in particularly off to me. It was a good episode about college students uh, and things that they actually go through. Mm-hmm. So I'll give it a three. I'm going to give it a two and a half. I really appreciated the Jaleesa, Dr. Foster storyline. And I and I also appreciated that I found out what Jaleesa's um uh, major was. I didn't realize she was a business major. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I learned something new today. <laughs> Forgot about that. All right. All right. Well, let's pause and then come back and talk about Home for the Weekend. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of Black people at the hands of police. This is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception. And we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit. We believe that Black lives matter. We believe that Black lives are more important than property. We believe that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are witness to it. In creating digital media, we hope to build audiences that will return week after week to hear our voices, and we will use our voices to speak against anti-Blackness and police brutality. And we encourage our audiences to be educated, engaged, and to take action. All season long, we will be donating to a variety of groups fighting against police brutality and systemic racism, and fighting for the safety and security of Black communities. This week, 
we will be donating to the Movement for Black Lives. And if you are able to, we encourage you to do the same. Go to m4bl.org. That's m, the number four, bl.org to learn more about the organization and ways you can support. Hey classmates and welcome back to the second part of our discussion where we will delve into The Cosby Show, episode 21, season four, and it is entitled Home for the Weekend. We are reviewing this episode because it involves the universe of Hellman College because Denise is visiting home. Now, Portia, did you get from the episode that Denise is home from spring? for spring break or is this just the weekend well both. i thought i heard spring break <laughs> but the title i'm asking because i thought i heard them say spring break but the title of the episode is home for the weekend did i was that my imagination there's discrepancies so let's just let's just okay. go on and, and just get this part out the way there's a few discrepancies <laughs> the the title is home for the weekend but the summary says spring break Okay. And there's a couple other things that I got, you know, some some minor issues with that we can talk about later. But one of the other things that we should probably mention at the top is that it's episode 21 or 22. Right. Because I am BD says 21, right? I think so. But if you are watching these on Amazon Prime, it'll be episode 22. So Yeah. So, yeah, just look for the episode that says home for the weekend and you're good. <laughs> right. Right. Thanks for that clarification. Well, this episode aired initially March 17th, 1988, which is fitting because that's like spring break time, right? It's spring break time. And, and it is, if you notice, it's the week after... Um, episode 18, which we just talked about, speech therapy. So it looks as though a different world had a bit of a break the following week. And it just so happened that Denise just mm -hmm. went on home and then the different world came back on the air the following right. week. So it tracks. Gotcha. 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 And just as a sneak peek in the next episode of A Different World that we will watch, we will be beyond the midpoint. So it's like the after spring break. They're kind of wrapping up the semester just as, you know, as a preview. But nonetheless, as Portia indicated, in summary, the Huxtable family rediscovers what it's like to have a daughter visiting for spring break when Denise comes home from Hillman. This episode is directed by Tony Singletary. According to IMDb, Tony Singletary directed a total of 42 episodes of The Cosby Show. So I'm assuming, uh, I guess it's safe to say he was well-liked and did a great job on those because they kept bringing him back. The writers of this episode include John Marcus. His previous television writing credits include Give Me a Break. Remember Give Me a Break, Portia? Mm -hmm, with Neil Carter. Give me... Nell Carter, give me a break. I sure deserve it. Something, something, something. <laughs> Wasn't that the thing? Something like that. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Anyway, Facts of Life and the pilot episode of A Different World. He was on the writing team for that. And he later went on to write and produce for The Larry Sanders Show. So I believe we've discussed him before. Mm -hmm. Carmen Finestra, her previous television writing credits include The Love Boat. Punky Brewster, also the pilot episode of A Different World. 
She went on to create and executive produce the hit TV sitcom Home Improvement. I think we've mentioned her before, too, I'm pretty sure. And Gary Cott. His previous television writing credits include Fame, I Want to Live Forever, <laughs> Hotel, and Punky Brewster. Producers for this episode of The Cosby Show include Marcy Carsey, Carmen Finestra, Terry Gurinari, Gary Cott, John Marcus, and Tom Warner. I'm sure I messed up Terry's last name. Please <laughs> charge to my head and not my heart. Who's in this episode? He's Cliff. Cliff Huxtable, played by Bill Cosby. Claire Hanks Huxtable, played by Felicia Rashad. Theo Huxtable, played by Malcolm Jamal Warner. Vanessa Huxtable, Tempest Bledsoe, Rudy Huxtable, the adorable Rudy Huxtable, played by Keisha Knight Pulliam, Denise Huxtable, of course, um, played by Lisa Bonet. And then we have the character of Davy Herbeck, played by comedian Colin Quinn. So Colin Quinn, those of you of a certain age, may recognize him. He is a legendary stand-up comedian. And Axer, I believe I first encountered him on MTV. When I saw him, I was like, oh my God, that's the dude from MTV. So according to IMBD, this was his first TV acting credit. However, he was already known to the MTV crowd. And again, I remembered him due to his role as the announcer for the game show Remote Control. He went on to join the cast of Saturday Night Live, and he also wrote for In Living Color. I had no idea. Did you know he wrote for In Living Color, Portia? No, not until my, you know, doing this research. Yeah. But you know what? Not to take too much time, but it's interesting. I know that, you know, some people might feel like uh, us going through some of these credits is a little bit tedious or whatever, but I think it's really important to know who was in the show and who mm -hmm. wrote for the show and even get some of their background because it's a reminder yeah. to us just how many hands were in were involved in the making of some of our classic television shows, classic black um, sitcoms more specifically. And I think it's mm -hmm. also interesting to recognize how many non-black people were involved in the process mm, it is right it's mind-blowing to me how many non-black writers wrote on our show wrote on in living color wrote on mm -hmm. the cosby show a different world fresh prince of bel-air give me a break you know all these non-black um, people directing and producing their you know partially responsible for the images that are coming out to to us you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's power in television. There's power in and mm -hmm. what's presented in pop culture. In a lot of ways, that's how we kind of judge ourselves and we 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 measure ourselves right. to what we see. And to know that there are mm -hmm. non-black people involved in the shaping of uh, African American culture that's presented to the public, it's you know, mm -hmm. it's deeper than than what we can get into at this moment, I guess. But it is something to right, really think yeah. about. So yeah, every time I see stuff like that, I yeah. always want to throw that in there. These people, you know, it's not yeah. just black people. It's not a it's not a black endeavor end to end. There's other people that are mixed up in it for good or for bad. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking of just, you know, different places this conversation can go. But if we do that, then we'll have a two hour podcast. And I don't think we want to do that. <laughs> just a two hour podcast on this particular episode. <laughs> if we're, we're, we're in which we might not get into a lot of the episodes. So I don't know, maybe that'll be a, a part B or something. You know, or what do you like an ancillary podcast that we do mm-hmm. to kind of accompany this? But nonetheless, uh, Portia, take us through the scenes. Okay, so again, this is the Cosby Show. So we open the show at the Huxtable residence. We're in the kitchen where we see Claire cooking Denise's favorite foods, um, and then we see Cliff entering into the home with a bouquet of flowers. And he's holding Denise's old teddy bear, which has now been freshly cleaned and repaired. So they're Mm. both super excited. They're preparing for Denise's arrival and they can't wait to welcome her home from school. Now, later that evening, as the family waits for Denise to arrive, because she's a little late, Denise's friends from high school show up and they're all a bit, you know, surprised. They didn't know that Denise's friends were going to come. They had made plans on a family night. Cliff and Claire were even, you know, coming up with additional plans after dinner. Uh, they wanted to take her skating and go to a jazz club. But clearly there's been some miscommunication because Denise has other plans. Now, let's start from the top. What do you think about Cliff and Claire's preparations? They're really super duper excited about <laughs> Denise coming home. They are. They are. I thought that was so special and nice. I even got a little jealous. <laughs> Me too. I was like, wait a minute. I was like, I don't remember my parents going all out like that for me. Like, my mom be wanting kudos when I come home to visit. And she's like, I made your bed. And I put fresh linens on them. Like, that, that's pretty much what I got to. I, you know, when I came home, my mom, you know, she did express joy that I was home. She was happy to see me. Yeah. But, uh, absolutely. You know, but... we might, we might have a little bit of something for dinner, nothing extravagant, but, you know, we have, we maybe we right. pick up something. I don't know. But it wasn't like I was, I had a, a hero's homecoming or something. Yeah, it just didn't feel as though, you know, a lot of detail and thought when it would go into the prep right. <laughs> for me to come home. You know, to, you like you said, there would definitely be joy and jubilation and excitement. When I got home, I definitely felt welcome, but, you know, definitely not that level of detail. But also, my mom doesn't really like to cook, which is probably where I got my temperament from cooking from. So, <laughs> you know. But speaking of cooking and menu, Claire's menu to me was absolutely gross. Yo, this was okay. This is when I was like, okay, this is a sitcom because they got her making everything. Right. But I'm like, okay, this maybe these are Denise's favorite food. So, okay. Let's go through the menu though, because we did not mention it. Girl, this is this is what Claire made for Denise, because these are Denise's favorite foods. You got spaghetti with meatballs. Beans and Franks, three different kinds of garlic bread, pizza appetizers, sushi, and French fries. How, Sway? How? How? I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around it. I mean, that's a stomach ache waiting to happen. 
It, it really, it really sounds like it. everybody except Cliff, because remember she had a nice big salad prepared for him. <laughs> He's the only one that's gonna make it out all right, because everyone else He's is gonna one. be doubled over. Yeah. And you know what? Let me not slight my parents. When I do come home uh, from undergrad, it wasn't definitely wasn't a big deal because I went to college like two hours away, and I had a car, so I, you know I, I would come home. I, you know, fairly frequently, not a lot, but fairly frequently. And I would still meet my parents at, you know, football games and tailgates. So they saw me a lot. But now when I went to graduate school in Syracuse, I definitely only came home like twice a year. And that's for the holidays in the summer. To my parents' credit, my mom's not a cook. She doesn't like to cook, but she would say, she and my dad would say, where would you like to go eat? Wherever you want to go, that's where we'll go. So I guess that was their way of giving me my special yeah. menu. <laughs> yeah. Now, Cliff went and found Denise's teddy bear and cleaned it and repaired it. Is there anything special that your parents did for you besides, you know, the, the food situation that kind of went back to well, your childhood a little bit? Yeah, one thing I found about my dad in particular, when I would drive home, and even this was even in undergrad, he'd always wash my car or get it washed and fill it up with gas. So, like, that was my daddy thing. So, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, you know, again, it was it was pretty much, uh, you know, my mom would make my bed and, you know, I'd have, I'd have a clean room to come to. Um she might buy mm -hmm. a couple of uh, food items that I like or, you know, buy some ginger. I like ginger uh -huh. ale, so maybe she buys some ginger ale. Oh, nice. I went to school for undergrad only an hour away, but I didn't have a car, so I didn't come home so frequently. Um, and then in grad school, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I was local. I, I uh, That was for my master's. And then I went off for my Ph.D. and I came home pretty infrequently. So it was low key. Mm -hmm. It was pretty low key. Yeah. Well, I know when I would, you know, you and your mom were gracious enough to invite me over for Thanksgiving a few times when you had gone away for your PhD program. I could definitely tell Miss Brenda Faye was super excited and elated to have you there. Oh, yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure she would have gone all out in them Thanksgiving Day dinners the way she would. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't true. coming There's home. no point in cooking all that food. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to be there to eat it. Yeah. Yeah, she, she, Miss Brenda Faye yeah. would definitely do some extra stuff. I'm just not just even the quantity. I'm talking about the variety. True. Because we would have a little, <laughs> we would have a mini feast for just the three of us, and sometimes your sister. So like the four, but I feel like there was a yeah. couple of years where it was just me, you, and Miss Brenda Faye, and your, maybe like your cousin would drop in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Shout out to Brenda Faye. Now, okay, I got a question before we move on. Was it, maybe it was just me, but did you find it a little bit odd that they were going all out for Denise, considering she was a sophomore? She had already been to school and came back several times. Yes. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, I, I, those were definitely my thoughts. Um, because I was like, okay, she was just had a random weekend home not too long ago where she was chilling and it was almost like this was her first time home and she had gone to school way, way far away, like in Switzerland <laughs> or somewhere. For me, the hero's welcome they gave her was like, or like when people go out for basic training for the military. Yeah. 
and like they're gone for months and you don't see them. I felt like that was the hero's welcome that she received. So I thought it was a little um, dramatic and overplayed. I did. Th- those were my honest thoughts. Yeah. You know, the only way that I can I can justify it is the fact that this is the first nieces coming back since a different world. The previous okay, year, right, 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 was a freshman, but she, but uh, Lisa Bonet was still a regular cast member of the Cosby Show, so we would see Denise, you know, here and there. So you know, and every time we saw her, the implication being that she's home from from school. Uh, maybe we just right. didn't see the heroes welcome all the other times she came home. <laughs> Well, you remember one time she came home, Dr. Foster got a hero's welcome. Cause he he went, sure did, yes. <laughs> he was all up in that house. But I digress. Anyway. Well, we talked about how our families reacted when we came home. What about your friends? Uh, yeah, I feel like I had, um, maybe I had a little bit of Denise in me in that sense. I remember times where I would want to... Um, connect with my friends or I was thinking more about connecting with my friends than um, trying to make plans with my mm-hmm. family, you know, which, which is a uh, self fun end and then understandable um, in another regard. Cause you know, you leave home, you leave your friends and your family. You want to see right, everybody right. and you only have so much time. So it's hard, you know, and, and like a lot of people do, they kind of, sometimes they take, their family for granted because they think, oh, they're always going to be here. I can always talk to them. I can always see them. And so you might make a little bit more space for your friends. But yeah, I'm I'm sure I've I've done that a couple of times, you know. And and a lot of times you have friends that go off to college, or you know they go off and do their thing, and then you come back. Especially if it's the holiday season, everybody's back. So mm-hmm. so it really makes it very special. You want to make time for for them. Mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, so, yeah, I would be excited to, you know, see friends. Um, that was more of a thing for me when I went to grad school. Because um, I wanted to see friends that still lived in Mississippi from college. But I was always cognizant of, you know, sharing my time with my family and making sure that, you know, I spend as much time with my family as possible. Also, family for me included a really big extended family. Like I had aunts and uncles and grandparents who, of course, were expecting to at least look at me right. <laughs> for five seconds. So, you know, I had to make sure to fit all of that in. So even though I would make these trips home, that would be anywhere between seven and sometimes maybe 10 or 12 days. It seems like the time would just go by so fast trying to see everybody. And again, this is more relatable to when I was in grad school in Syracuse. And, and when I was in grad school in Syracuse, I really could only afford to come home, you know, work-wise, time-wise, not even just financially, but just time-wise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I could only really afford to come home because uh, there's always so much work to do and they make you feel bad when you're not working, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I could all, only afford to come home during like Christmas break and like maybe once in the summer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, too. Because, yeah, when you went home, you you went home to your immediate and extended family. For me, it was immediate. My extended family lived in Alabama. So it's a little different situation. Mm -hmm. So. All right. So we have established that Denise is back home and her time is divided. 
so the next scene, we see the Huxtables and it is three o'clock in the afternoon and Denise is still in her bed. She's on these, these college student hours. I remember <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. Cliff is the, you know, acting as a tele- telephone operator. Phone is ringing off the hook and he's just busy, you know, taking messages. Everybody wants to talk to Denise. So Cliff finally wakes her up and tells her that she has missed 19 phone calls, five of which are from a medical student named Stevie, who is currently on the phone. Uh-uh. So Cliff has decided that he likes him. He's persistent. He's a medical student. He wants Denise to give him a little time. But Denise tells him she's not interested, and she asks her father to get rid of him. So he goes ahead and does that. But before she can get back to sleep, because that's her priority right now, um, Claire and Vanessa come into her room, and they invite her to go shopping with them. Vanessa needs to buy a new party dress because she's going to a party this evening. She wants Mm -hmm. her big sister's help in picking one out. And Denise, initially, she's down She's down to ride with them. And then she remembers that she's already made plans with her friends. They rented out a pizza parlor and hired a band to celebrate her return home. Look at that privilege. Oh, my goodness. Affluence and wealth, honey. I mean, you know, hey. Right. Let me not hate on the Huxtables and their abilities to celebrate each other. You're right. You're right. You're right. And their look and their friends and their friends. Uh, so anyway, so this is Denise's dilemma. She wants to go hang out with her friends, but then we see later on, Denise decides to change her plans. She's going to stay home with her family after all. But she also, you know, she feels like she's kind of doing the best of both worlds. She's gonna stay home with her family, but she also decides mm-hmm. to invite her friends to hang out and watch movies with them. Mm-hmm. Which isn't really exciting once once Cliff hears this news, but one of those films happens to be his favorite western, so it works out for him. He's okay, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meanwhile, Vanessa is getting ready to leave for her party. She she found her dress. Claire is going to take her to the party, um, but Cliff sees her in her new outfit, and he is. Not pleased at all. He does not approve. (laughs) And he decides to make her test out the dress's capabilities. Now, (laughs) before we get to the dress, let me just, you know, give a little fun fact that nobody asked for. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, So Cliff says that his favorite Western is called Six Guns to Glory, starring Colt Kirby. Guess what, LaRonda? What, girl? This is fiction. That movie you and know, that actor do not exist. I was wondering if they did, but you know me, I was too lazy to look it up. I felt like Portia, no. <laughs> I looked it up because I was just like, I wonder if this is, you know, the the Cosby show and a different world, again, they'll leave little um, Easter eggs here and there, uh, tying uh-huh. back into African-American culture. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. Um, or if you care to look it up, then you you know you you'll get that little message. So I thought, I wonder if this is a nod to you know a, a pioneering black actor. Girl, I googled it. They said, nope, this is fate. So you know, there's that. <laughs> right, and, and also re- regarding your fun facts that nobody asked for, 
We just don't know how much we need your fun facts until you give them to us. So keep them coming. Okay. <laughs> okay. If we knew, if we knew to ask for your fun facts, we would. <laughs> Got it. FYI. Okay. Now, this is the part that I really want to get into. This whole issue with Cliff policing Vanessa's outfit. What do you think about this? Especially seeing this as an adult. What do you think about this interaction between Cliff and Vanessa? Um, I'm probably not being politically correct. I, I I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was funny and entertaining. I kind of get the, I can empathize with Dr. Huxtable's um, hesitation and fear and concern about his little girl growing up and being viewed as sexually attractive by by men. Uh, I didn't really see it per se as policing her body, but more so a dad having a hard time, you know, giving up his little girl. And, you know, assuming I don't have any of the knowledge about him that I have now, mm. you know, I, I, I think about a, a dad knowing how, you know, men are and can be and just really wanting to protect her from that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think when I initially saw this scene. Because again, we've we've seen the Cosby Show every episode of the Cosby Show umpteen times, so I'm sure mm-hmm. many times that I've seen this episode, I didn't think much of it, and it was just a you know funny uh, funny scene. And yeah, I can definitely understand what you're saying. It is there is that element of just a maybe an overly protective dad. And I one thing I I am curious about, and maybe one day we'll go back and and check to see how old Vanessa is supposed to be. In this particular episode, I'm guessing she's probably maybe a high school freshman-ish. Yeah, I was thinking like maybe either eighth grade going into ninth or like ninth grade. Because remember, or no, probably ninth grade because Theo in this episode, he's a senior, right? I believe so. Because he tells uh, Denise's friends, yeah, I was a sophomore when you guys were seniors. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, and, and, and two years have passed, right? Because mm-hmm. so like um, Theo is a senior and I feel like Vanessa and Theo are like two or three years apart. Yeah. So, so Vanessa at know. most is in the 10th grade, probably in the, in the, probably 10th, in the grade, 9th yeah. or 10th grade. Yeah. And I feel like this is like the like maybe like the freshman slash sophomore formal or semi formal type of situation. So, yeah, so I, I get that, you know, Vanessa is still a little bit young and, you know, kind of testing the waters. And, and you know, especially, again, being super fans of the Cosby show as well, we know Vanessa's character has pushed the limits many times mm-hmm. throughout the run of the Cosby show. So maybe that's that might be foreshadowing. I don't know. But because, you know, fl- you know, flashback. It's after this episode, she and the girls try to come up with the singing group, right? I I think so. I think it's after this episode. You remember that? Because they had, they were like over, they felt, the parents felt like they were over sexualized when they had their little singing group and the outfits and da, da, da. 
So I feel like she's a little younger than I think that particular episode comes after yeah. this one. But yeah, that's that's when Claire went off and she, you know, checked. Yeah. Them. But um, right. But that outfit was much more grown than this outfit. The problem that Cliff had was so it was a strapless dress. She didn't have any straps on. Yeah. And she, and, you know, and he just kind of felt like it was a little too mature for her at her age. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just like, I feel like he might have gone a little too far with some of the things that he was having her do. So, he, you know, he wanted her to test the dress, make sure that she was going to stay in place because he felt like, you know, y'all kids, y'all, y'all dance and you're just not mm-hmm. aware of what's going on. And next thing you know, you're going to come out of your dress. So jump up and down, move around. And I was just like, wow, this is a little embarrassing. And I did appreciate, though, that there was a moment where Claire was like, now I want you to bend down and touch your toes. And and Claire stopped. And she was like, that's enough. And yeah. she said it, you know, kind of very assertively, like, no, right. we're not doing this and we're going. And I, I appreciate that they had that moment, right. you know, even during that whole time, Claire right. was there and she was, you know, she was watching. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then she stepped in when it was. We're not going to mm-hmm. subject our daughter to, you know, this humiliation. So, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know. It it just kind of hit a right. little different now watching as a as an older adult. It's kind of like, hmm, I don't what you know, there's a there's a line between yeah. being protective and then also are, are we sending a double standard? Because I would hope that we're having a conversation with Theo as well. Very true. Or had a conversation with Theo at some point. Uh huh. Well, we kind of do get. It's not a parental conversation, but something mm-hmm. a little parallel does come up. You know, with him and Denise in the kitchen. So at least it's implied that he has been raised with you know some good standards, mm-hmm. right, and more character and fiber. Yeah. Now the other thing that it brought up was just the idea in general that parents are uh you know can can be a little particular about the clothes that their children wear out of the home now did you run into any issues with what you wanted to wear versus what your parents wanted you to wear yes but not in an over sexualized way it was more like a fashion bumping of the heads because when i was in school the trends and styles were very tlc ish mm-hmm. very baggy clothes crisscross wearing your clothes backwards so for my parents it's more like why are you wearing your clothes backwards that's stupid it doesn't make sense <laughs> um for formals and whatnot i i don't recall them having an issue also i was on the dance team so i basically tried it my little butt out on the football field in a leotard and some knee boots every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you know, I had to wear this little Friday suit, you know, which was kind of revealing, you know, as part of my, you know, af- you know, my, let's call it athletic gear. So my, I never really had an issue like that with my parents and, and, you know, the clothes that I chose to wear, now, at least not that I can recall. Yeah, I'd have to say the same for me. My, I don't recall having that conversation with my mom. You know, same thing. Baggy clothes were in, so I was pretty much wearing baggy clothes uh, every chance that I got. But you know, I never wanted to wear any revealing clothes. 
like even when it wasn't trendy, I never, I never felt com. I don't know. Just, I was always the type that just really preferred to kind of cover up. But I rem- I was on the cheerleading squad. Question, question, real quick. In terms of covering up, was it that? Do you think it was like body image thing, or was it like a part of you, tr- you know, policing your own self because you didn't want guys to see you a certain way? Or was it just, I just don't like showing cleavage or I don't like short shorts because they, I'm just not comfortable in them. Do you know why you felt that way or? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's a mixture of all of it. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're, when you're growing up, you notice what guys notice, you Mm -hmm. know, you realize the things that kind of attract attention and never been the Mm -hmm. type of person that sought attention. So, you know, if mm-hmm. I was so baggy clothes were in, but also body suits were into at, a, at some point, they kind of yeah. overlap. So I remember mm-hmm. um, I didn't have I didn't own a lot of body suits, but, you know, trying to be a trendy, I bought a, a body suit. And I remember, you know, just kind of the attention that I got because it was fitting. It shows your shape. And I remember being uncomfortable and, you know, wearing jackets with it and then eventually just not wearing them at all and just. Uh, wearing something that was a little less form fitting because I just didn't, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. sure what to do with that attention. Gotcha. You know what I mean? Gotcha. So it, part of it was that and then body insecurity and thighs are too big or, you know, my stomach's not flat enough or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I was on the cheerleading squad in high school. And so we would have to wear uh, cheerleading uniforms in school whenever it was game days. And football season was was especially interesting because that's when it was warmer. And so we wouldn't we didn't have to wear the little leggings that go underneath our skirts. We would just wear our skirt and our legs was out. And those were some short skirts and those were some fitted mm-hmm. outfits. And and I remember, you know, I've always been the kind of person that's like, I don't necessarily announce anything. So I don't know how many people knew that I was on the cheerleading squad until I showed up. Right. In my uniform. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot right. of attention and I grew to like really, you know, be uncomfortable on those game days, especially, you know, during the football season, because, uh, you know, I was, I was out here and, uh, you know, it, it, it was, right, it was right. I don't know. It was hard uh, and it's a it's just an interesting time to be a a girl during that time and you're trying to figure out your body and your body is growing and yeah. Mhm. All right. So, moving on to Denise and her friends because they are in the living room now. And uh this is when Theo arrives home with his date named Gwen. And Theo just had to have her meet his big sister, Denise. And in front of her friends, Denise kind of teases Theo. And uh, he, he just can't let that slide. He, he's not going not gonna to let her get away with that. So he mm-hmm. asks her to come to the kitchen with him so they can have a chat. And he lets her know that, you know, her comments are not appreciated. If, in case you don't know, he is a mature young man now. Since she left for college, a lot has changed, <laughs> and he insists 
that his interest in Gwen is beyond physical attraction. Denise thinks that he's just, you know, with her because she's a beautiful young lady and she is right. a beautiful young lady. But he feels like he's he's attracted to her mind. She's intelligent and she is on her way to Duke University. So take that. They have mm-hmm. a nice little moment and they hug. And then we get back into the living room and we see Cliff. He's already gotten started on Six Guns to Glory. He is, he's about to launch into, <laughs> yeah, he about to launch into a nice little story and the girls are just like, uh, what is this? What is happening? This is supposed to be our day. And, uh, so since they're not quite as excited about Westerns as Cliff is, Denise decides to change the tape over to Davy Herbeck's <laughs> Brains on the Table. Brains on the Table. Brains on the Table is the name of the, I guess it's a, stand-up kind of experimental comedy kind of special i don't know it put me in the mind i don't know do you remember the comic the comedian i think his name was gallagher yes that's exactly who i was thinking of it kind of put me in the mind of like a gallagher was like from the 70s 80s i think maybe like a 90s version or a younger version of a Gallagher type of person. And for those of you who may not know, I don't know much about Gallagher, just recalling off the top of my head, the one thing, he was a comedian and he did a lot of physical comedy. And one thing I remember he would do was he would smash watermelons yes, and the residue and pieces of the watermelon would get on his audience. Mm-hmm. So Pete, it was Common, it was common practice for people on the front row in his comedy shows to have plastic so that when the watermelon pieces came flying, they would have some type of protection. But yeah, for some reason, it was a hit. Somehow he decided that was that, that was going to be his, his signature thing. He was going to just smash a whole bunch of watermelons and whatever else he had, because I think he did more than just watermelons and they were down. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> they mm-hmm. loved it. I felt like... This character was a mix between Gallagher and uh, he gave me Sam Kennison vibes too, with the whole. Like, I'm not familiar with him. He, so his you could uh, he mentioned seemed like it was a trademark. He was like, "I'm losing my mind." Like Sam Kennison was one of those. I don't even know what you call them, like a shock comic or something like that. He was just very mm-hmm. well. Sam Kennison could be quite vulgar. He was big in the '80s. Okay, I think he he also. Like his image was was very much like rock and roll stripper. Like he was mm. like the comedy equivalent of a metal band almost. He had long hair. He was kind of heavy set, but you know he would do this whole thing. He'd tell jokes, and, but he would scream them out, and then he'd work himself up okay. into a frenzy, and he would just be like, ah ah ah. He just you know. <laughs> That was funny. Wait a minute, is that the guy from the police academy? No, that's Bobcat Goldthwait. You talking okay. about that guy that Bob, just okay. talks funny? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, to me, I felt like that's kind of what was being referenced here was a bit of Gallagher, a bit of Sam Kennison. Gotcha. But, you know, mm-hmm. these are kind of considered maybe alternative comics. So it was it was a little interesting to me, and I maybe I was reading into it a little too much, but I was just wondering, considering this is Bill Cosby, and he tends to have very strong opinions on what's appropriate and what's not, and what's comedy and what's not. I wondered if that was supposed to be any commentary on on the state of comedy mm-hmm. at that time, because Cliff and Claire right. in the scene are just like, "What the heck is this?" and 
girls are just like, I'm into it. This is the funniest thing ever. Or maybe it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, showing the differences in the two generations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most parents aren't really into the same thing that their kids are into, period. Right, right. But anyway, so the next day uh, we see Denise running into the house because she has to finish packing before her ride arrives. This is her last day at home. It looks like she spent most of it out with her friends. Mm-hmm. And so now she has to get ready to leave. And the family expresses their disappointment about not spending enough time with her during her visit. So they decide to play a prank on her. Since she didn't have enough time for them while she was here, they're going to pretend like they don't have enough time for her as she's leaving. Right. So they play a nice little trick and then, you know, they say gotcha. And then she realizes, ah, you guys got me. And then that's it. (laughs) (laughs) So we already talked a bit about the comedian that they were um, watching. And also, Mm -hmm. quick little shout out to the video rental store. You're seeing a lot of peeps in this episode. And I realize we are are at that sweet spot, LaRonda, where we are old enough to have been around when VHSs started kind of coming into the mainstream and left. Mm Mm-hmm. Like we yep. saw the rise of the rental store and saw the demise of the rental yep. store. Yep. I was watching something the other day and I, isn't there like one blockbuster still open or like one video? I believe so. I saw this news clip on it and I since the quarantine, their sales have increased substantially. Mm, I believe it. So I thought that was interesting. However, me and my scary self am really glad to be living in the age of Netflix (laughs) and Amazon Prime (laughs) because I don't think I would have been visiting the video stores frequently. Right, right. During this particular time. Would have had to spray it down with Lysol and all kinds Mm -hmm. of stuff. But um, I guess it was last year. Man, so much has happened. Um, Last year, Captain Marvel came out. And uh, it was such a big deal because this was the first Marvel movie that starred a a female character, female superhero. Mm -hmm. And it was primarily set in the 90s. So I remember watching the trailer and like one of the first things you see or one of the major markers of this is the 90s. This is the time frame. They had this lingering shot on Blockbuster store. (laughs) And I was like, that's it. That's, that's all it. we need to was, Girl, that was what you did on Fridays. Yes. You was either doing that with your family, with your girlfriends, or if you had a little boo, as my mama say, somebody you was courting, then y'all <laughs> was going to get a movie to watch. You was having a slumber party. What you do for your slumber party, we going to the Blockbuster or the video rental store. Yeah, it was, it was a thing. We would go to the Blockbuster and then either Pizza Hut or McDonald's. And that was our nice little special Friday night uh, or weekend thing. Because mm-hmm. usually Friday nights, we also were watching TGIF on right, ABC. Right. True, true. Because we had to get our Family Matters time Absolutely. in step by step. Absolutely. <laughs> so the other thing that I wanted to point out with this whole scene. Girl, did you notice when Cliff suggested the prank on Denise? how excited Vanessa and Rudy were. I didn't really notice it until you, oh said, until you said something. But be, for me, 
their excitement was normal because I'm a naturally vindictive person. So I probably <laughs> would have like that was normal. Like there was nothing extraordinary. Like I probably would have had the same zeal and zest to do it. And it would have been totally normal. Like, yes, let's get Girl. her. I let, I was just like, wait a minute, this is a little too much. Vanessa was like, oh, good idea. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a great idea. I'm, I was all for it. Great. Yeah, I probably would have done that myself in real life. <laughs> I might have let Denise go back to school, though, before I was like, yeah, we was pranking you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you would have oh, you would have hurt her little feelings. So, you know, of course, the reason why they pranked her is because they felt like, you know, Denise neglected them. So did you ever feel neglected by family members before like that? Mm, Not that I can recall. Well, take that back. Take that back. A few, maybe two Christmases ago, I had, you know, my nieces were at the house and I wanted to do like a girl's night on the couch and I wanted us to watch a movie. I think I wanted us to watch Moana together and sing the song. And my niece, she was like 13 at the time. She had just gotten a cell phone and she was really in her cell phone in the computer. And I was like, no, we're going to have family time. So you're going to put that phone down, turn that computer off <laughs> and look at this movie. We're going to look at this movie together as a family. <laughs> and she like, she pouted the whole time. Oh. And my other niece, who was younger, was, of course, all into it. Like, we were singing and, you know, whatever. But my older niece, honey, the, the teenager, she was just mouth poked out from here to Brazil. And I ain't care, though. <laughs> but my, I mean, I did care because my feelings was hurt. So, yeah. My teenage niece has hurt my feelings. She probably will hurt them more as she gets older. Uh-huh. But I'm going to remember that when she asked for Christmas gifts. Uh-oh. Well, I can't recall ever having a specific moment where I felt like I was a little neglected or set aside by family. I'm sure it's happened, though, especially, you Mm -hmm. know, being younger and having older cousins, for instance, and kind of wanting to hang out with them. And they're just like, no, get get out of my face, kid. Yeah, I'm sure that happened to me, too. Well, another thing I just wanted to mention We don't have to talk about this too long, but I did notice because the whole time, you know, Denise's hair had braids in it. I didn't I didn't realize she had braids. I thought her hair was just just out. Mm -hmm. But when her hair was down in the final scene, I noticed that she had braids and Vanessa and Rudy also had braids. Yeah, That was really nice to see these three black girls with braids in their hair in 1988. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally. Theo sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. Could you figure out what that what was on his yeah. sweatshirt? Because there was a face. It was a black man's face on it. And yep, I knew who it was immediately. It was Doug Williams. And, you could tell. Um, okay, I couldn't mm-hmm. tell because I couldn't read. I was trying to read it, and I I kept stopping it and starting it. I couldn't read, but I thought it was him. Yeah, I, I recognize him, Doug Williams. So just to go back a second, I was really into the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And some of these nuances in the show, because something else I noticed when Heathcliff was in the room with with Denise and she was sleeping till 3 p.m., there was a Spellman flag on the wall. Did you notice that? I did. There, I noticed a Spellman flag. 
Theo's girlfriend had on a FAMU t-shirt. I noticed that. And so then it was like Doug Williams just brought it full circle because, you know, he played football at Grambling State University. He sure did. And went back and coached there. And went back and coached there. So Grambling um, is a part of the Southwestern Athletic Conference, which is the same conference, athletic conference of my parents' alma mater. So like just growing in Grambling is in Grambling State University is in Grambling, Louisiana, which is like a two and a half hour drive from where I grew up in Mississippi. But I mean, that's a lot of probably unnecessary information. (laughs) But saying that to say, because my family was a big football family, we went to a lot of swag games. So I just grew up like Doug Williams was a household Mm -hmm. name. And I grew up in a football family. So like, I just always grew up seeing images of Doug Williams. So when I thought about, I was looked at the, the shirt, I was like, yep, it's the 80s. That's probably around the time he played in the Super Bowl with the Washington, the football, the professional football team in Washington, D.C. Right. Yes. So that's the thing. So that's why I wanted to make sure to bring him up because it was very timely. So, you know, there are yeah. people who know him for what he did uh, at Grambling. But then there's other people who know him beyond that and they know him for what he did in the NFL and he made history being the yeah. very first black quarterback to to win the yeah. Super Bowl and the first black person to earn the Super Bowl MVP. Yeah, I was gonna say I think mo- more and if not most people know him for that. Right. His his uh professional career. Right. And that was that uh game was played on January thirty first, nineteen eighty eight. Again, this episode aired on March eighteenth, nineteen eighty eight. So mm-hmm. we're just uh, we're just weeks out from um, from him making history mm-hmm. in the NFL. Yeah, because I thought about that. I was like, OK, I look, you know, I did look up the dates just to be exact. I was like, I bet this was like a real exciting time. It's very new because you know how it is when we have our black first. Right. We'd be super excited. So I know that was like um, that that wardrobe choice was happening. I wonder who was in charge of the wardrobe back then? Or was that something that Bill Cosby was like, yeah, I want to make sure we have this, you know, in, in the season at some point? Because I know, um, you know, the HBCU paraphernalia was definitely one of his insertions and influences that, you know, we see that was weaved throughout the entire um, run of the Cosby show. So I wonder, you know, if Bill Cosby was like, yeah, let's make sure we get the character Theo something commemorative of Doug Williams' significant achievement. Yeah, that that might have to be something we'll have to look into for future episodes. Denise, again, on the Cosby show, Um, or we'll, you know, we'll see some overlap between uh, characters Mm -hmm. from Hellman and... um, and characters on the Cosby show. But um, but yeah, I would not be surprised if some of that is also coming directly from Bill Cosby, especially, you know, he, he didn't just wear shirts or sweatshirts uh, from HBCUs. He definitely was a big, uh, you know, proponent of education. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was nothing for him to wear any colleges, right. um, you know, paraphernalia. So yeah, I would not be surprised mm-hmm. if that may have been a personal kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And then just to wrap this up, again, Doug Williams was the very first black quarterback to win the Super Bowl. Russell Wilson of the Seattle Seahawks and husband to Sierra, uh, superstar, pop, R&B, dancer extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so anyway, Russell Wilson became the second quarterback, second black quarterback to win the Super Bowl. And that was on February 2nd, 2014. So that was quite a, a huge chunk of time between 1988 and 2014 for the second black quarterback to win. And then actually earlier this year, we got the third black quarterback to win the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes of Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, which was cool. And this past season was a very interesting, this season and the season, the NFL season before last was a, were very interesting seasons. They dubbed it the year of the black quarterback because there were so many mm. black quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, and sh- speaking of the black quarterback, shout out to Colin Kaepernick. Right. Yes. You know, we all know where what's happened there. But um, yeah, they, they even the NFL did or I think ESPN may have done a special on, you know, just the the number of black quarterbacks that were present and prevalent and made substantial waves in the NFL. Like, God, I remember watching the playoffs. We almost thought it it was highly likely. It was very probable that we would have had two black quarterbacks in the past Super Bowl. It didn't happen that way, but it was like, it it was very possible because they were both on the AFC as well as NFC sides. But we'll see how long that trend continues. And if you can just talk a little bit about why this position in particular is so important. Why why are we making such a big deal about the first black quarterback, second black quarterback, third black quarterback, and the year of the black quarterback? Why is that important? His, his, historically, quarterbacks have been, or quarterbacks are viewed as basically the, the rainmaker or the brain of the team, right? Mm-hmm. So football is a very physical game. And everybody plays a physical part, but as a part of quarterback, you know, this is the position that's, or the person that's calling the plays that, you know, can change the play, switch the plays up and, you know, determining what's the best play. You know, again, it's like the, the, the mothership of the team and for, for, for forever in college football, as well as professional football, the thought was that black people, black men in particular, were not intelligent enough, did not possess the intelligence to play the role. Mm -hmm. And then also another misconception about in terms of, you know, athletic ability, you know, black bodies are for running and for, you know, knocking other people down and not for throwing. So another misperception about black football players is that they can't throw the ball. And a lot of black quarterbacks and would have complained about the fact that they or rather when a team wants a black quarterback, they want somebody to run or, you know, they won't let him do a lot of plays out of the pocket. But, you know, people like Russell Wilson and I'm not sure I didn't watch Doug. You know, when I was watching Doug Williams, I was very young. I didn't understand the game like that. And I haven't studied him. Mm-hmm. But um, like pe- quarterbacks like Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes really dispel that myth because they can right. run and throw. Absolutely. Yeah. So it it was a huge deal when Doug Williams was the first to do that and really dispel those myths. Yeah. And he came from an HBCU, which is even more significant. So because at one point, especially in NCAA Division one, there were just none. You, you, You could like if a black man wanted to play quarterback. He had to go to HBC or a black college to do it. They just they were they were hardly ever allowing it. 
They they do it more now, but back in the day, I remember just this quarterback Warren Moon. He used to play for the Houston Oilers. I would cheer for the Houston Oilers just because they had a black quarterback. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. That was like the only reason to like the team. They had a black quarterback. That that's a, that that's the predicament for a lot of black people because there's just so few. There's there's so few out there. Mm-hmm. We end up rooting for teams that, you know, might not have been the hometown team or, you know, our favorite team, but because they got a black person there, we, we ride. Look, like Issa Rae say, I'm rooting for everybody black. Okay. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but okay. But that was important. I'm really glad that you were able to provide that context. All right. So final takeaways, final thoughts from this particular episode. Uh, I thought it was a fun episode of the Cosby show. So I, I like it. Yeah, I thought it was fun too. You know, a little little farcical at times, I, I suppose, especially you know when you're talking about Denise and her friends renting out a pizza parlor and and mm-hmm. uh, hiring a band. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I'm like exactly. either this is privilege that I've never ever heard of or thought of before, or this is just overboard and this is just a sitcom being a sitcom. But yeah, mm-hmm. so it was fun. It served its purpose. You know, again, a little bit of well, why is this even happening? Denise has been gone and have come has come back uh, several times, but this is an opportunity for the audience to kind of welcome Denise back. Now, yeah. what do you think would be different if this episode had been done today? Uh, we may have seen Denise uh, spending more time on a tablet. Or a smartphone device that may have been the source of the distraction, but heck, everybody in the household right would have probably been distracted by that. I think maybe if I had to put my spin on it, maybe the episode could have centered around the family wanting to spend time together, but then everybody was distracted mm. by their devices, and they have like a come to Jesus moment, like, hey, right, we didn't do anything we were supposed to do. And it's time for Denise to leave. Yeah. Because, you know, you got to wonder how in, you know, in today's world, how enriched would her connection to even her friends have been? Because, you know, we're so tied to our devices. Yeah. You know, and there were a couple of times where there were, um, you know, miscommunication. They thought Denise was coming home. They didn't Denise had made other plans, you know, because nobody had a cell phone. So mm-hmm. they would have, you know, they would have been able to have that conversation via text right. or, or you know, just on a phone and been able to plan accordingly. Or even, mm-hmm. you know, all those phone calls that yep. came into the house. No, that would have been straight to Denise's uh, phone. Right. That wouldn't have been happening. Inbox, DM, whatever. Inbox, DM. Yeah, it, it would have been a little different. And I, I agree. It would have been more of everyone was going to kind of be distracted. And, and tied up in their own personal lives or, or personal devices. So so how would you rate this particular episode? So I obviously have a Cosby show bias. <laughs> so my scale is a little different. Just, you know, for context, I started relatively on the low end for a different world because I've, there was just a lot of uncertainty about how I would feel about season one and compared to the other seasons. So I wanted to leave some, you know, flexibility, right? And really make my rankings relative. 
So my ranking of the Cosby show, FYI, y'all, is not relative to my <laughs> rankings for a different world. Just want to put that out there. So my Cosby show ranking is on a scale. It's on its own, you know, comparison scale. But I would give this one a four. Okay. Okay. Um, I'd probably put this at a, at a three and a half. Okay. Yeah. I put this at a three and a half. The, the Doug Williams shout out, uh, subtle shout out was a, was a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Good episode. Yeah. Well, I think that does it. We have reviewed a different world. We've reviewed the Cosby show. We are all up in this Hillman Huxtable universe. Mm-hmm. And we will be back next time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Hillman Class Reunion Podcast. I'm Dr. Portia Flowers. And I'm Dr. LaRonda Ely. Don't forget to follow us on social media, Twitter at Hillman Reunion, Instagram, Hillman Class Reunion, and Facebook at Hillman Class Reunion. Original intro and outro music was produced by our friend and brother, Daquan Bowens. You can get more info about him at daquanbowens.com. That's D-E-Y-Q-U-A-N-B-O-W-E-N-S.com. We hope you join us for our next episode of Hillman Class Reunion. Bye. Bye, y'all.